Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm the director of ECFR and this week we are talking about the future of the Iran nuclear deal or the JCPOA as it's known to uh, its aficionados. We are now uh, just over three weeks away from the fateful date of the 12th of May when Donald Trump has to decide if he waives the sanctions which are uh, the US has imposed uh, in order to, to allow the JCPOA to carry on existing or whether he de facto pulls out of the nuclear deal and to help us make sense of what's going to happen in the US, what it means for Europeans who've toiled long and hard to bring this deal into operation, and how the Iranians are likely to react. I have an all-star cast um, in joining me in Brussels. We have um, Elan Goldenberg, who is the head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the Center for New American Security, based in Washington. We have uh, Ellie Garenmeyer from ECFR, our senior policy fellow, who leads on our, uh, all our work on Iran. And also, um, we have Nasser Hadian, who is a professor of political science at Tehran University, who is uh, going to tell us what things look like within the Islamic Republic of Iran. So, Elan, uh, given that most of the disruption uh, seems to be coming from Washington, John Bolton has uh, newly uh, installed Mike Pompeo, uh, taking the State Department possibly in a different direction. Um, what do you think uh, is going to happen? What are people expecting um, over the next few weeks? What, what is happening in the run-up to the 12th of May? What will Trump do on the 12th of May itself? Sure. Well, that's a thanks, and great to be here. And that's a, that's a great question. I think all of us are waiting with bated breath, and nobody knows exactly. Uh, the first thing I'll say is I would look less at the president's appointment of Mike Pompeo or John Bolton, and more at the president himself. Increasingly, Trump is making his own decisions, uh, not necessarily listening to his advisors all that much, or as much as he used to, and deferring to them. And it's not that unusual if you look historically at American presidents, and this probably applies to most world leaders, the more comfortable they get in their own skin after they've been you know, in the job for a year or so, they really start going with their own instincts. Now, in the case of Trump, I think that means most likely, uh, no matter what happens, uh, most likely we're going to see him not waive sanctions in May, uh, and most likely start to walk out of the nuclear agreement. It's not going to be something that happens immediately. It's going to be this slow-motion thing that takes a lot of time. Uh, but in the meantime... We still have these negotiations ongoing with, uh, with our European partners, uh, and it's possible that we get to an agreement between now and early May on, on, on what the president would call, quote-unquote, fixing the JCPOA. Because in January you said we either have to nix it or fix it. Mm-hmm. So what does fixing the JCPOA mean from his perspective? Sure. I think it means a few things. Well, I think the problem is we don't know exactly what it means <laughs> from his perspective. We know what it might mean from his advisor's perspective, and that's the problem. There's three or four things. One, um, inspections, where, where I think there's, just, there's a desire for some language, at least agreement between Europe and the United States on how we view the IAEA's role. I think that is going relatively smoothly and isn't the challenge. There's a question about whether or not uh, he can convince Europe to add some additional sanctions on ballistic missiles uh, and Iran's ballistic missile program. Again, there I don't think it's a major challenge. Uh, the big issue is the so-called sunset provisions, uh, which basically 
you know, certain limitations that come off of Iran's nuclear program uh, after 8 to 10 years and 15 years, and Trump wants to see those extended indefinitely. Uh, my own view is uh, you can have an add-on agreement that comes after the JCPOA, but you have to think of it as a new negotiation, including benefits for Iran, and it's possible that we get there. Um, that's what the Europeans but, have been saying for a while. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that, that's where I would like to see us go. And the question is whether or not he and Europe can get on the same page on how we move forward on that before May. But you said that it's not going to be a gradual thing, but he has got a binary decision about whether to waive the sanctions or not on the 12th of May. He does. But even if he, you, first of all, you can see him say stuff like, we're going to give people six months. We're not going to, we're going to waive this time and then we're going to wait six months and then we're not going to waive anymore. But in or January he said it was the last chance. But he's also got a new Secretary of State, a new <laughs> National Security Advisor. They, Pompeo and Bolton might actually want a little bit of time to get into the job before they, they hit go on this. Um, and even if, even if he doesn't, you know, the sanctions that are supposed to be waived or that might not be waived in May are specifically have to do with oil sales. And that what happens is international players then would have six months to start reducing their oil purchases uh, from Iran. It doesn't, it's not something that happens overnight. And some of them will, I think, listen to the United States and reduce their oil purchases, but some won't. I have a hard time seeing the Chinese just hopping on board with that. So the specific sanctions that he's looking at in May are not ones you can just snap back. But just to add to that, I mean, it's very likely that from the perspective of Iran, and I would argue both Europe, that failure to waive a critical part of U.S. obligations under the nuclear deal is a significant breach of U.S. obligations under the nuclear deal. So then, essentially, the ball is almost in the court of Iran about how it responds and whether it sticks to the deal and claims that there's been a U.S. violation, in which case you have a process of conflict resolution within the framework of the deal. But the practical impact of that is once the U.S. president stops the waivers, business with Iran will freeze. And that is going to be, I mean, on the oil sector side, that's likely to be more or less immediate impact. So we'll get onto that and also talk to NASA about how Iran's likely to react to it. But you've been going shuttling around different European capitals over the last few months and trying to work out what the response is to this ticking time bomb that um, Donald Trump set off when he said in January that it was the last chance to fix the deal. What's the what have Europeans actually been doing? What is the the kind of strategy, particularly in in the E3 in in, in uh, uh, Paris, Berlin, and London at the moment? So since January, there has been monthly, if not weekly, meetings happening at working level between the E3 and the US counterparts on how you come to some sort of a understanding between the transatlantic partners on responding to Trump's ultimatums, frankly, from January the 12th. And as part of that, there's also been very senior level political director level meetings. In the coming weeks, we'll have a visit from President Macron to the White House and and Chancellor Merkel, and the Iran nuclear deal will be on the top of their agendas and their talking points. And essentially what the Europeans are trying to do is to find some sort of a... um, accommodation um, that um, 
essentially does the bare minimum possible in terms of damaging or inflicting on the on on how Iran would perceive um, the the imposition on the nuclear deal, um, while still showing that they are willing to work with the U.S. allies on quote-unquote, confronting Iran vis-à-vis the regional issues and the missiles issues. Now, what there is, um, you know, there isn't um, all that much agreement amongst uh, all the EU 28 member states about the type of negotiating tactics that have been pursued in trying to bring the US back into the fold on the deal. And I think that, you know, the E3 have, you know, understandably been very eager to keep the U.S. as a critical party to the deal in the deal. But there is concerns about sequencing of actions, uh, particularly on on, uh, additional sanctions on Iran, which is the very limited cards that the Europeans have. So we're likely to see an acceleration of these talks in the coming days. And the E3 took some of these ideas to the rest of the 28 and tried to get them to sign on to these things and were rebuffed recently. Well, rumor has it, (laughs) and um, some reporting has it that um, indeed in the last few weeks, um, there has been an effort to um, floor new sanctions um, regarding Iran's regional behavior vis-a-vis Syria and also missiles um, to basically consolidate support for, for new sanctions on Iran. And there has been a degree of questioning uh, about why should Europe give away its limited card of the sanctions card, essentially, before May the 12th, before they really know what President Trump will finally decide to do, rather than just wait until after May 12th, once they have guarantees from the US. Okay, so... Before we come to to talk about the, the the response in Tehran, what is actually going on in Washington? Do they really think that they're going to get the Europeans to take the regional issues seriously and the other things, or are they just looking for a face saving device to blow up the nuclear deal? Um, that's that's the million dollar question. It's not exactly clear. I think there are both. I think there's there's definitely the negotiations with the Europeans have been serious. I'll say on the regional question, ironically, that's the one that's gotten the least attention inside the negotiations, despite the fact that Trump in the beginning, the whole justification for why the deal needed to be quote-unquote fixed is because of all the regional behavior wasn't addressed by the nuclear agreement. But that's not what actually we're talking about. We're talking mostly about sunset provisions. Um, You know, and so at least my own view is I do think there is a way forward here and something that hopefully could even work for Iran. which is that in exchange for, for coming side agreements between Europe and the United States on some of these issues, if he can get a commitment from President Trump to stop with the every two to three months drama and say the nuclear deal, we have fixed the deal, it will stay, that would be a huge benefit. And if you have to do some things that might create problems in the long run, in exchange for short-term stability, that will do a lot more for getting business into Iran. That will do a lot more for our European partners to stop having this every two- to three-month drama and headache. Yeah. And it will also do a lot more for, for Democrats in Congress and supporters of the agreement. So if you can – I'm okay with making concessions to Trump if in exchange what you can get out of his mouth and maybe even legislation and that says, all right, the deal is staying and we're not going to have this roller coaster. Yeah. Um, that's, where I, that's where I fall down on. So how does it look in Iran? Uh, in Iran, we have also a lot of debate 
uh, about this issue and you know one line of the arguments have been uh, we have to give the credit to President Trump that he has been able to frame the issue in a way that everyone is talking about May 12th. Everyone is talking in the world whether he's going to waive the sanctions or not. Uh, I have personally argued that's the wrong way of dealing with the issue. The question for us is a different question. Are we getting the benefit that we think we deserve under the JCPOA? If we are getting the benefits, so we have to stay, with or without U.S. If we don't get the benefit, we should leave, with or without the U.S., without uh, basically President Trump waiving it or not waiving the sanctions. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's my view, but that's not the dominant view. So are you getting benefits from the JCPOA? So far, yes. Of course, the benefit for me is not just only economic mm. benefit. It is far more uh, far broader than the, the economic benefit. So far we are getting the benefit, so that's why I support uh, us to stay. And I think even without the US. And how much, because there has been consistent complaints from, uh, from Tehran about how the economic benefits aren't flowing through, companies are not able to, to, to invest, there are lots of bank, banks are very reluctant to do anything. Um, with Iran, um, you know, there are a few limited things like Airbus and uh, uh, Total. But um, is it? Yes, I mean, I will address that question in a minute. You, I mean, yeah, uh, first of all, we have to know there is a politics in Iran. So those hardliners who oppose the deal, they would say that we didn't get any benefit. Yeah. Okay. And they just uh, point to the failures. Yeah. But those who supported the deal, you know, they would say that, yes, we got almost everything we wanted. So it is beneficial. And there are some few things like the banks, which you mentioned. But the, at the end of the day, we got a lot. And the biggest uh, thing, presumably, uh, is not having a war with the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, but I was just addressing the economic benefits. <laughs> yeah. okay? But as you mentioned, in fact, the, for me, the benefits is not just only a security benefit, political benefit, diplomatic benefit. So if you put them together, to me... It's worth for us to stay, even if President Trump withdraws or does not waive the sanctions. And uh, provided the European mm-hmm. and the rest of the international community deliver on the promises they have made. So that's very important. And to us, in fact, or to me, that would be more dangerous to see U.S. try to appease President Trump at any cost. That's the wrong way. And uh, rather than appeasing him at any cost, it's better possibly to work on the plan B, which I heard uh, they are working to me to us. Uh, that would be a more appropriate path uh, to move forward. Because to be frank with you, not only I don't think President Trump ever has read the document, he has not even looked at it. He doesn't know what is a sunset clause. I wish one day... There's a challenge for Mr. Trump. <laughs> yeah. I, wish, I wish a journalist asked him once, do you know what is the sunset clauses for? Yeah. He doesn't have the vaguest idea what are the main elements of the JCPOA. And you want to come up with some fixing, uh, quote-unquote, uh, measures to modify the documents. The guy doesn't know what is in it. What is it supposed to be fixed? So we have, why we have to spend that much, that much time 
uh, to come up with measures that the president does know does not know what is the relevancy of these measures to the content of the JCPOA. And in terms of the the balance of power um, now, because obviously it's been an ongoing debate. It was a debate before the JCPOA was signed. Iran's obviously a very uh, uh, polarized uh, society with lots of different um, attitudes towards uh, the US, towards the the JCPOA. Um, uh, and you know, we, it was one of the topics in, in the elections when Rouhani was 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 uh, was, was re-elected. What? Where do you think the, the the kind of balance of power within Iranian society is at the moment, and and also within the political system around the utility of the deal, and how worried are are you about that changing as a result of the um, uh, of, of American politics? Certainly, at the time when the JCPOA was signed, majority of the Iranian population plus majority of the Iranian elites supported the deal, absolute majority. If you ask me, I guess today still majority of the elite and the majority of the population would support the deal, the JCPOA. Although it may not be the same, although this at the same uh, ratio, uh, and also more importantly, the hope the JCPOA has created for that majority. You know, I don't want to say it is evaporating, it is still to be there, and uh, but that's what is more important than the number. Yeah. That you know that sixty percent, sixty-five percent still continue to uh, to support the deal. So the point is how Europe is going to deal with the issue that that the people of Iran see uh, that okay there is a light at the end of the tunnel yeah. of the JCPOA. They see that yes, possibly U.S. is out, but you, uh, but Europe is firmly committed to its uh, promises, and we are going to be benefiting uh, from the JCPOA, and that would be good for everyone because, in terms of the balance of power, as you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, President Rouhani and President and the Foreign Minister Zarifs are not in a good position, uh, particularly within the polity rather than society. Uh, because uh, many would blame them for not foreseeing what happened. In fact, the trust was basically on Zarif, Foreign Minister Zarif, that he is expert, he knows how to negotiate, and although the hardliners opposed him vehemently at the time of the deal, and still they continue to do so, but now I can say they can say we told you so. Yeah, you know because. There was, a, there was a level of trust and uh, that President Rouhani and Foreign Minister Zarif put on the deal. So the, the hard-earners are in a position now to say that we knew it, we told you so, and you did not trust us. Yeah. So maybe we should go into these kind of scenarios because I think that it's worth exploring how everyone's going to react to the different things. I mean, maybe, Elaine, we could start by thinking out some of the different ways that if uh, the, the things might happen on on the twelfth, obviously, if the you talked a bit about mm-hmm. about them in your first answer, but what would you lay out as the kind of different scenarios from an American perspective? Sure. Well, I mean, can I ask you also? Yeah, I just yeah, want to like hop in on one thing Nasser said and ask him a question a little bit too, because um, you know, I do think that 
know, we're talking a lot about Plan B and the possibilities of Europe and Iran working together. I think at the governmental level, that can absolutely work. But I'm very worried that you know, there is no real economic benefit to Iran from the European private sector once the United States starts threatening sanctions. And can you actually get that kind of behavior? This is why I worry about Plan B. And I prefer to see you know, if you were to get some kind of a deal between the Europeans and the United States, even one that started to create headaches 10 years from now when it comes to the sunset provisions, things that you could see as potential violations of the agreement eight years from now. It would be something we would have to deal with. But in exchange for that, if you can get Trump to actually say, I will stay um, in the agreement you'll get and really put some stability around it, you'll get a lot more economic benefit today for Iran um, and more stability in the deal and a possibility of the deal succeeding in the long term. But the so point is we don't see Iran that way. We think that's only an excuse. It's not going to go away. President Trump is going to find other excuses uh, because his policy is the regime change. If mm-hmm. that is the policies, it's just a matter of time for him to find another excuse. Mm-hmm. So uh, we don't think going down that road would help us. Thus, we have, it is better, we are better off to think now about the alternative path rather than wait longer and then you know, go to for, for the alternative path. I would just say two things. One is also, um, as I see it, speaking to European governments and businesses, Already within the legal framework of JCPOA, nothing is moving. Um, And so actually an effective argument that opponents of the nuclear deal make in Washington is Trump can keep this going because the business is drying up with Iran and we don't need to actually necessarily look as if we're the violating party. We just keep this unpredictability while staying in the deal. Um, And so... In some respects, from the from the Iranian perspective, it's almost better if the U.S. leaves. So there's clarity and there's isolation of the United States. And and the second the second issue is, you know, I think that the great worry for the Europeans about reaching this accommodation with the president's team is, even if the president signs off on it today, will he commit to it in a month's time? And so. For the Europeans, they're going to pay a political cost for agreeing to that deal without really any precedent in, in this presidency about ability to strike and keep deals. Yeah, no, and that's what you'd need to, I think, beyond just a deal between Europe and the United States. This is where Congress has to play in. Yeah. Some of the drama that we see is every two or three months, the president has to start signing documents that then trigger, and he gets upset, and he uses it as a moment to threaten everything, and so you would have to have first an agreement between U.S. and Europe, but then congressional legislation that basically stopped making the president have to sign these things. And so that way the drama would stop because instead of signing every three months, you would have every two years or take it away altogether. Uh, and then you might actually have more stability in the system. So that's so, one scenario that a deal yes. gets raised. It sounds from what Nasser was saying that there won't be a massive amount of Iranian assistance in, in doing this kind of deal because you think that that's basically renegotiating the terms of the JCPOA. So scenario two, I suppose, is you walk away, is you walk away mm-hmm. in a quiet way. So you walk away, but you don't introduce secondary sanctions against Europeans mm-hmm. and against others to make their kind of life difficult. Third scenario, I suppose, is you go away, all, all guns blazing, yeah. secondary sanctions against European companies and, and, um, 
And then I suppose the, the, the kind of final scenario is you waive it, you stay in the deal, but you ramp up your behavior in other areas, whether it's, um, you know, on regional issues, continuing to... Yeah. And then bringing in sanctions on ballistic missiles and all in other areas that you have kind of sanctions which are maybe not necessarily technical breaches of the JCPOA, but they just make mm. Iranian life more difficult. Is that right? Is that the, the world? Is that the universe of scenarios, or are there other ones that we haven't? Um... Yeah, I mean, I think from the American perspective, the most likely one right now seems to be walk away and slowly start to reimpose sanctions. Um, you know, that seems to be what the right, Trump American is. sanctions or no, yeah, US, American, secondary US secondary sanctions. Against, that US bites against, Europeans. Yeah. Yeah. It starts to bite Europeans to sort of slowly start reimposing those, create some waivers, maybe maybe do some carve outs so mm. that Europe and so that Europe and Iran can viably, for example, do a P four plus one deal. Uh, and the US promises not to go after European companies, although it will still potentially threaten Russia and Chinese And why companies. would it do that? Because if you wanted to blow the deal up, why would you... Well, it's about, essentially, can there be a deal put in front of Trump that mm. allows him the victory with his base to say, I walked away from this disastrous deal, quote-unquote, as he sees it, mm. uh, while allowing a civil separation with transatlantic partners to say, okay, we, we don't want a transatlantic feud over this, we're out but we're not going to enforce the U.S. secondary sanctions that come in. Now, I thought this would work under a Tillerson-driven diplomacy with mm. the Europeans. I have grave doubts whether with Bolton in office um, this is going to pass muster because we know his views on Iran and we know his views, frankly, on yeah. Europe. Um, so I think that, in a way, is plan B for Europeans, but there should be a plan C, which is they start enforcing these sanctions to make Europeans bleed, and we need a response. But on, on the plan B, if that did happen, that you get carve-outs so you could have a P4 plus one mm. deal with Iran, is that something which is um, going to be good enough to keep Iranian support for the JCPOA? Or are people going to say, OK, America's withdrawing from the deal, let's start uh, our enrichment programmes again, let's throw out the, the inspectors, there's been no economic benefits and a kind of escalation from the Iranian side? In fact, uh, we have, I mean, if President Trump, because of whatever reason, do not, uh, does not waive the sanctions, we have four scenarios or four, four options in front of us. Option number one is basically we react to what President Trump did. If he uh, basically, uh, if, he, if he doesn't waive, thus we are going to announced it is a violation of uh, the JCPOA, we are going to withdraw. A uh, very reactive policy, that's one. Uh, it has a, its own support base in Iran. Option number two is basically we are going to work with the Europe and the rest of the international community, provided that they deliver on their uh, commitments. And uh, uh, we are going to also uh, to abide by our commitments to the extent we have, that we have been, no less, no more. Option number three is proportionate to US, to U.S. withdrawal. We are going to reduce our commitments, symbolically, basically reducing the 300 kilograms of the enriched uranium, for instance. These are just examples, to 400 kilograms. If we have 5,040 centrifuges in Natanz, we are going to have it 6,000. 
they are not important, but symbolically just not to reinforce the bad behavior of the U.S. And option number four is basically rather increasing our commitment for showing a good will to the world that even though U.S. has withdrawn, so we are going to uh, reduce, for instance, the enriched uranium, the stock of our enriched uranium to 200 kilograms or reduce the number of centrifuges to 4,000. So what, what percentage chance do you think there is an option number yeah. four? Sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. But I guess uh, option number one and four are not very viable, for, uh, viable, viable options. Rather, it is going to be number two and three. I mean, the, the so main two body was, of them. Two is the proportionate... No, that's a three. Okay. What Reducing them. Two is basically... What we are doing, we're going to continue to do. So it's trying no to more, no less. Four no four plus more one. Less. Yeah. And, and exactly. three is, is basically symbolic moving away from Reduce, the deal, yeah. But, but not reinforcing the bad behavior of yeah. the US. Tit for tat, yeah. So a little bit. Not, see, that's a yeah. symbol. We, don't, we understand that because that's going to be the violation of the JCPOA from our part. But mm -hmm. we have to somehow come to an understanding with the Europe. We are doing it principally because we don't want to strengthen the bad behavior of President Trump, because to us, it is important what would happen domestically in the US. It has to be very carefully calibrated, because yes. if, if it's anything other than a symbolic shift, then why yeah. would the Europeans and others be, continue yeah, to be that's bad that's why their side It should be negotiated with them, that what should be them. These are, these are just yeah. examples. Yeah, yeah. And Ellie, what's your kind of sense of, of, um, of how Europeans are going to play it? Because... Um, there's been a reluctance to, to speak publicly about um, Plan B and Plan C um, so far. You would, so the Plan B um, uh, is, is your scenario too. <laughs> We're going to really confuse your listeners now. Okay, yeah. But yeah, Plan, plan B for me, um, which I still hope is viable, is what I term a civil separation. Yeah. You allow the US to come back into the fold under this administration later on or, or, or in a future administration while offering Iran a certain degree of economic relief that keeps them in the deal yeah. without avoiding a transatlantic rift. Yeah. Option C, and this then goes into, I think, the matrix of transatlantic relations that need to be resolved under this administration is, do you want to make a, um, do you want to make a real um, rift with the United States over the issue of U.S. secondary sanctions and positions, which, by the way, are also going to cause a headache for the Europeans on the issue of Russia sanctions. Um, so there is even now deliberation, even in the banking community. How does it how does it impact on Russian sanctions? So there is now thinking about the viability of European companies being penalised uh, under U.S. secondary sanctions for Russia right. for Russia activity. Yeah, and so. For, for Europeans, there, there's a huge economic uh, factor at stake there uh, to a degree that's not at stake right now for Iran. But there's also thinking whether, given the parallel track of these Russian sanctions and the uh, possibility of Iran sanctions returning on, on the secondary sanctions front, is there a case to be made um, for, for the more um, extreme options of the Europeans basically saying, secondary we need sanctions to... sanctions against American companies. Or, you know, the, the, the ideas that we've explored in the past on your podcast, issues like the blocking regulations, issues like um, tit-for-tat penalties. Can you what blocking regulations are? Yeah, so they're, they're a uh, regulation that were brought in in the 90s by the Europeans, essentially as a 
political leverage. It's obviously a legal measure, but it was a political leverage to push back against the imposition of extraterritorial sanctions on Cuba, Iran, Libya. Um, and it's, there, there's thinking about whether it can be revised um, through consensus with, within the member states to respond to the new realities that have create, been you know, created with the interconnectivity of banking sectors of Europe and, and the US to basically provide a ring fence for at least the smaller, more medium-sized European companies and banks that could do business uh, with Iran without being subject to what is an objectionable US foreign policy on sanctions. So that's one option. That's, I think, the least preferred option for the yeah. Europeans, to be honest. Um, it's, uh, And I think it will really be influenced by the general relationship on trail, trade between um, US and, and Europe, and also, by the way, um, the ongoing events in the region as well. Okay. So we're sort of coming towards the end of the time. We've laid out a series of, of pretty depressing scenarios here. Maybe <laughs> we should end by getting you all to gaze into your crystal balls and tell us which scenarios you think are most uh, are most likely and what percentage chances you'll, you'd attach to them all. Do you want to go first, Elan? Sure, I would. Well, actually, let me just be optimistic for one moment and say that you never know with Trump. We had news today that that you know Mike Pompeo has secretly met with Kim Jong Un, and you can see how if if the message that the Trump administration is getting from the North Koreans is if you're going to do a deal with us, you got to live up to your if we're going to believe you, and if Trump gets personally invested in that. Um, Maybe there's maybe there's a way forward. Who so, knew that the road to peace in, in Tehran <laughs> ran through Pyongyang? Pyongyang? Yeah, no, it's. I mean, and like actually, Mike Pompeo himself becoming personally invested in that process could be interesting too, because you know when when these when these people when these leaders start to get really invested in a negotiation process and they own it, yeah. uh, you know that that makes a difference in their decision making. So. So I don't know. I'm probably right now at 75% Trump is walking away uh, in, on May 12th with some kind of soft walk away. Yeah. Uh, and 25% in that we get some kind of an agreement with Europe uh, and he stays at least in the deal for the moment as discussions continue. Along with, you know, yeah, that's probably where, I, where I'm at. Okay. Ellie? I would also just pepper with some optimism that in the latest round of discussions last week in Washington, the Europeans have sent relatively positive signals about how those discussions were progressing. Um, but I would put it as a 50-50 chance of either a, a, you know, a soft exit, as Elon says, in which the Europeans are able to create this civil separation with the United States, um, but also, frankly, with the coming in of Bolton, I would put 50% as a very hard exit and making Europeans bear the brunt of that. And zero on their staying in the deal? Mm. Mm, I would say even if they stay in the deal, it's just um, to prolong this degree of unpredictability. So it's not really the U.S. committing to its obligation. So I, I would actually... No, you're right. It's not exactly zero, but, <laughs> but I, put a, I, I put it very far, very low. So but on my scenarios, I guess uh, I'm on an optimistic side too. I guess uh, if, with the withdrawal of the U.S., provided U.S., uh, Europe basically uh, would be committed to uh, its promises, I guess, so, uh, option number two 
yeah. which is a good one. Uh, yeah, I, I would give that so option 65, yes. 65% chance. 65% that one. And I would give uh, about uh, 25% to option number three. Which is, this is the... Uh, proportionate to the US withdrawal of it. Which is As basically a version, it's, a, it's still something people can yeah, live with if it's proportional exactly. enough. Yeah. So you're very optimistic. So 90%... Exactly. Just only 10% no? the first one or the last one. Okay. All right. Well, that's, a, that's quite a positive uh, note to end on. A 90% chance that the deal survives in some sort of form. Um, we have, we'll obviously come back after the 12th of May and see how great your crystal balls were or whether they were somehow um, uh, clouded by, um, <laughs> by uh, your optimism and your commitment to, to seeing this deal survive. But we have one more thing left to do on the, on the podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Elan, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm finished, or I actually just recently finished a book called The Sympathizer, which is uh, about a North Vietnamese double agent who goes... Uh, with uh, the fleeing South Vietnamese community uh, to the United States right at the end of the Vietnam War and the, the questions of social and cultural dislocation. Really interesting, deep, dark book that I highly recommend if you're in, a, if you're in the mood <laughs> to go somewhere weird. Okay, what about you, Ellie? Um, I've just started to um, read a book called Snow by Orhan Pamuk. Uh, from the early 2000s, and it's about, uh, I don't know what it's about, I'm about to find out, but it's setting Turkey in the context of the Middle East, and it's extremely beautifully written in the 20 pages I've gotten through. So <laughs> look forward to finishing it. What about you, Nasser? You know, the book is entirely different from the, the subject which we are discussing. That's about, basically, what is this thing called science? That's the theories of science, the, the, the newest edition, which I did not have it. So I have to read it for the class. But I wish to point to an article, rather, than the book. And that's about what I, an article about one of my colleagues who wrote about, uh, you know, the debate between the new generation and the revolutionary generation. That what was in our mind at the time of the revolution when we basically uh, were so committed about the revolution and why the new generation is so uh, debating the issue intensely about their parents. So that's a very good debate. And, uh, so what's the article called? It's in Farsi, presumably. That's in Farsi, yes. That's in we'll, Farsi. we'll get the link, uh, yeah. the translation. Is there a translation? No, it's not a translation. That's because it's the domestic. So it's for the all audience. the Farsi Francis, listeners. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's basically a debate with, the, with, with our children. Great. Okay. Well, it sounds like we should have a separate podcast on, on this article. Yeah. It sounds fascinating. Yeah, yeah. The two of you can talk about the, the, the two generations yeah. talking about the. the uh, but that's great. So we'll see. We'll see a, a huge peak in a surge in our Farsi listenership. I think on the back of your recommendation. <laughs> And I'm going to recommend something which we were talking about uh, briefly before we started, which is a, a, there's a long uh, profile of one of the great disruptors in the region in uh, New Yorker recently by Dexter Filkins about mm -hmm. Mohammed Bill Salman, who is a fascinating uh, figure and uh, his fingerprints can be seen in many of the regional crises which Iran is involved in and which we've talked about on this podcast in the past. And um, that brings this discussion to an end. We'll put links up to all of our recommendations on our website, uh, which is www.ecfr.org.
www.ecb.eu slash podcasts. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do make sure that all of your friends and colleagues and other acquaintances are aware of the podcast by tweeting about it or writing about it on your Facebook page or ours. But above all, heading straight to the ratings and reviews page on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen to us and giving us a uh, a review. It drives traffic and is very helpful for us to get the word out about the podcast. But for now, from Elan Gomberg, um, Ellie Jeremiah, Nasser Hardian and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The... Researcher of our podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atinaro.